0: This is from Deuteronomy, the 24th chapter of five verses that have to do with marriage that um, that come from Moses. If a man marries uh, a woman and she displeases him because he finds something indecent in her and he gives her a certificate, uh, writes a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her out. And if after she leaves her husband, she uh, marries another man who dislikes her writes her bill of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her out, the, or if he dies, the first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry the defiled woman again. Such a thing would be detestable in the sight of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance If a man is newly married to his wife, he is not to be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. He is to be free for a year to be at home and bring happiness to his wife. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. I must say I am grateful not to be a woman married under Deuteronomy 24. In the days of ancient Israel, if your husband found in you something indecent or another translation is unseemly, then he could divorce you. Now, what indecent and unseemly could be varied with the different rabbinical schools of interpretation. Rabbi Hillel said that this indecency could extend to a woman who burns a meal. And she could be divorced for that, in which case I would have been tossed out of the house a long time ago. Uh, Rabbi Kiva said, well, actually, the indecency could simply be that the man found another woman who was more beautiful than his wife. And so he could divorce her, uh, divorce his wife. Well, I've lost a lot of hair over the last 30 plus years. I could probably be bounced out of the house for that one. Too. In fact, Josephus, um, who, uh, from whom we learn so much about the practices of the Jews during uh, Jesus' day, even almost brags that he divorced his wife under Deuteronomy 24 because he didn't like his, her behavior toward him. Now, other rabbis interpreted it differently. There was obviously a school of rabbis that wanted to tighten down on this uh, certificate of divorce. And so they said the indecency simply had to be an obnoxious odor that the woman had. Well, I could probably get bounced out of the house for that one, too. And then there was Shammai who said that the indecency could only be sexual immorality. And when Jesus comes along, that's the position that he takes, that that is the only grounds for uh, the certificate of divorce that he saw. But what seems to be clear is that um, certainly Moses permitted divorce and that certificates of divorce were issued so that a woman uh, would be known to be eligible so that if someone married her, she would not be accused of adultery because, quite frankly, marriage was the woman's security. It was her uh, uh, way to survive. It was her retirement plan was to be married to a husband and hopefully have sons. But it gets more interesting to me when you move past this to the uh, law about now if a man divorces his wife and she marries somebody else and that guy divorces her or he dies, the first husband can't take the wife back. That's real interesting because Islamic law is exactly the opposite. And that is that if a man divorces his wife, she must marry somebody else before he could actually take her back. So there's a lot of discussion about what God through Moses is doing in this law. And some of the uh, real strong possibilities, it seems um, to me, are this. First of all, as we talked about with a, a mother and father who might want to punish their rebellious son, their sort of uh, boundaries or fences that are put to prevent them from uh, acting irrationally, this may, be prevented, uh, this may be put in front of the man to prevent him to, from acting rashly about divorce. So basically, if you just make up your mind quickly to divorce your wife, you need to know, dude, you're not getting her back. I mean, that's just the way the law is written, so it, it may help him think twice. Other people see that what this is, it protects a woman from being like a marital football, you know, pass from one husband to another, pass back to the first husband or to another husband. Some say it prevents wife swapping in Israel. So there'd be no reality TV shows in Israel about, about leaving uh, and exchanging spouses. That, that simply wasn't going to happen. And then there are others that say what really uh, Moses is after here is protecting a second marriage. And so if the first husband knows that he's not getting her back and the wife knows in her second marriage that, that going back's not a possibility, the belief is that hopefully in the second marriage both the wife and husband are committed to strengthening uh, that relationship and it will be protected from the first husband, in which case these laws of Moses are, are much less about divorce and rather more about protecting and strengthening the existing marriage, whether it's the first marriage or the second marriage and this seems to be the tact that Jesus takes as well because when they uh, talk with Jesus about divorce Jesus uh, says yeah Moses allowed it but don't you remember God said from the beginning that two are to become one flesh and, and it seems that Jesus would rather talk about marriage than divorce and then he makes that comment that you know if a person is divorced and, and and then they uh, marry someone else that makes them an adulterer well a lot of good research has been done. You can find it in, from David Biven and other people. But basically what doesn't get translated in English is sort of a, a cause there that just says if you divorce your spouse in order to marry somebody else, that is what makes it adultery. In other words, you already had this relationship probably going, and so you divorced your spouse uh, and, in the hopes of marrying somebody else, and that's what Jesus declares to be out of bounds, not remarriage itself but rather that you would divorce someone because you already had somebody else waiting in the wings. And all that, I think, is, is interesting to me, but what I wanted to spend a moment with you is I wanted to see what do people in Israel and the rest of the scriptures do with this text of Deuteronomy 24. And what I found were something that a couple of prophets did. Isaiah 50. The prophet basically asked rhetorically to the people of Israel, did God give you a certificate of divorce? Where is it? The situation is this: the people of Israel, the, uh, what later became the Northern Kingdom, also called Samaria, had sinned so greatly they 'd sacrificed their children to false gods, they engaged in uh, activities with temple prostitutes i mean didn 't take care of the poor that terrible list of things they 'd done wrong, and so basically they had committed spiritual adultery against God, and so God turned them over to a new husband, the Assyrians who Picked them up and carted them into exile. And the Babylonians would later do the same with the southern kingdom. And apparently, what Isaiah is saying is even all, though all that happened, I never saw the certificate of divorce. God is willing and ready to take you back and can do so. But when you get to the prophet Jeremiah, it, it changes a little bit. Jeremiah 3 and 4 basically say, even though you committed adultery against God, and it went over to false gods, and God turns you over to a new husband, the Assyrians, and another new husband that will come the Babylonians, God says, I'll take you back anyway. Basically, Jeremiah says God will break God's own law of Deuteronomy 24 to take the people back. So whether you look at Isaiah's example or Jeremiah's example, what they do is take Moses' text on marriage and say, yeah, this is the law. But look what God did for God's marriage. God loved unconditionally. God wasn't going to let any rule or law prevent God from loving God's people no matter how far they had strayed from their relationship with God. Now, stay with me for just a minute. Then if you go back to verse 5 of Deuteronomy 24, the, the text that Audrey left, uh, lifted up for the children, it says, now if a, a, a man marries, he's newly married, he's not to go to war, be sent to war, or have any other duty laid on him. For a year, he's supposed to stay home and keep his wife happy. Well, the first thing I thought of, you know, uh, uh, being kind of a, a, a teenager during Vietnam was, oh man, you're 4F. Well, we said, this is great, get married and you don't have to go to the service. You don't get drafted. And apparently there might have been some of that sort of thinking because the rabbis had to finally say this only applies to new merit, to a first marriage. So in other words, every time war broke, broke out in Israel, you couldn't get married to somebody else so you would stay home. But as I researched it, what was more surprising was this was considered a great sacrifice. And if you think about it for a moment, you see that. Because it is a privilege for a man in this case to... Fight on the side of the Lord's army. It is a privilege and an honor, and a high duty to be a part of Israel as they conquer the Promised Land and take full possession of the land that God has given to them. It is a high duty to protect your family and your community. All these things with a sense of uh, duty and privilege and honor would probably make a man want to go and defend a God's honor and his community in battle. And basically, it's a sacrifice because Moses says, you can just take your band of brothers' spirit and put it on hold for a year. That what's more important than the protection of this country and its defenses is the state of your marriage. Invest in that first, and then you can go and honor God and protect God's people. Well, you roll that all together, and where do you come out on marriage? I think somewhere where Paul came out. When Paul's talking about marriage in Ephesians 5, he says, Now, husbands, you need to love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And he talks about a sacrifice that God made in Christ. And that Jesus, rather than, in a sense, going to battle, instead just volunteered his own life and said, Take it. For my bride, I will give my very life. And you see the highest example of sacrificial love and of the unconditional love of God who is willing to give God's son so that will happen. When I started thinking about this, something occurred to me. And let me first say this you are an amazing group of people in the body of Christ. Between the people here at Alamo Heights, whether in the sanctuary or whether in the New Heights or whether in the the foundry coffee shop that we have, or our people out at Riverside or the Loft coffee shop, we have people here who love on behalf of God all over the place. In a given year, we'll be in Kenya, Uganda, Burundi, Piedras, Negras, Costa Rica, Southside west side, open our doors here to give out food and utilities, open our doors up north to give out food and utilities. Lots of opportunity for the people of this church to share God's love unconditionally with those in need. And I think it's spectacular. But when I look at this passage, I see this. I see God saying to me, you know David, maybe your first opportunity to love unconditionally the way I love you is to love your spouse. Now, maybe that's first. And you get that maybe your best opportunity to love the way I love, to love love a person that you have to be with 24-7. Now, if you can love in that circumstance, that's the way I love, and then from that you go and you show love to others who are in need. There's that amazing verse that says, Now, you don't want, You don't want to break this law because you will bring sin against the land. What this says to me is, if I love my spouse, it's the best thing I can do for her. It's the best thing I can do for God. But do you hear this? Moses is saying it's the best thing you can do for your community. We've noticed in Moses how important it is to ground a society in parents who love their children... And in children who will grow up and take care of their parents. And now I think what God is showing through Moses is foundational to all of that. Is the way that we unconditionally love the spouses that God has put on our life. Our love of our parents. Our love of our children. Our love of those in need. All spring from that foundation. And I think when Jesus looked at Deuteronomy 24, he simply said, why are we going to spend energy talking about what's a legitimate or are a not legitimate reason to divorce? Why don't we talk about how we can strengthen what is foundational?